Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. All right, we are back uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And this morning I'll be preaching, teaching through verses 15 through 20. Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. Now, verses 1 through 20, it's this longer discourse that Paul has on the new life in Christ and how it relates to those who are outside of the church. So up to this point, he's uh, really been talking about the application on how we relate to those who are in the church, how we walk in unity and in love with our church family um, in the body of Christ. But he, he shifts gears here um, in, in chapter 5 to talk about how we're actually supposed to walk in love towards those who are non-believers, how we relate to non-Christians, how we relate to those who don't go to church. In the first half of uh, chapter 5 here, what Greg talked about last week, Paul talks about putting off the old self. Um, and in the second half, where we're going to really be diving in this morning, is putting on the new self. So for uh, holiness, there's two different aspects of holiness. One, we have to put off the old Adam and the old Eve. We have to, to kill that old self. But that's not enough, you know, if you just put off the old self and you don't replace it with something good, then maybe you're just neutral. But holiness is also walking in a new way in Christ. And so the second half is talking about how we would put on the new self as it relates to those who are outside of the church. So we're going to be talking about that, how we relate to non-believers and not be weird about it. How we relate to, I mean, we talked, Greg kind of mentioned last week that there's a lot of knee-jerk reactions when you first become a Christian. Uh, you might burn your CDs or your, uh, your vinyl records. Or I've known some, someone who threw away all their DVDs, every single one, like really good ones. Um, it's just a thing that we do. But I think there's a better way. Um, instead of cutting off every relationship that we have and instead of throwing away I mean, I remember at church camp, they called it paraphernalia. Instead of throwing away your paraphernalia, Christian paraphernalia, right? There's something better. There, there's something better. There's a way to relate to non-believers without being weird. So instead of cutting them off, we live by a new standard with them. We live by a new ethic with them. And so that's what we're going to see here in verses 15 through 20. Um, in chapters 4 through 6, this is the application of the first half of Ephesians. We spent a lot of time in the first three chapters. That was more of the theology, more of the background, more of the underlying reason for the way that we are and who we are. 4 through 6 really, really looks at the application of being a Christian. And so today's, today's teaching is going to be all about the practical um, the practical way, Paul kind of gives a rapid-fire list of how we are supposed to relate and have practical application. So, we're just going to jump right into it, starting with verse 15. And I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. Usually the way that I preach, I'm, gonna, I'm trying new things, and you guys have been so gracious over the years of allowing me to find my voice and God to use me in that way. I usually read the whole chunk of Scripture and then I break it down, but I'm going to go uh, line by line this morning. I think it lends itself to the passage a little bit better. So, we are just in 
Ephesians 5, verse 15, starting right now. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So, this whole section is about walking in love towards unbelievers. And the first thing that he says when it talks about putting on the new self is, walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So this is a distinct command. What we are supposed to be as Christians, what we're supposed to do. Our lives are supposed to look like we're walking in wisdom. Not unwise, but wise. So when the, the watching world sees you, they're not supposed to say, that person's really unwise. They're actually supposed to say, well, that person has a lot of wisdom. Because here's the thing, as Christians... In most cases, we're not supposed to be viewed as crazy people. In most cases, we're supposed to be viewed as normal people who live by a different standard. There's one place, and it it will flow itself into a lot of your life, there's one place that makes us crazy, and that's good. It's that we believe that Jesus is the king of the universe, and he died on a cross, and he rose three, three days later, He was risen from the dead, and he's God, right? And he's the king of everything. That is a crazy thing to believe, and it only takes the spirit. So if someone thinks you're crazy because you believe in that, okay, fine, we live with that. But in most cases, when we're in the world, we're supposed to be seen as wise people. We're supposed to walk in wisdom, not necessarily walk in insanity, That's not the goal. The goal is to not be insane. The goal is to be wise in Christ. So, um, what Paul would often do is he would give a command or an imperative. Some people call it imperatives. He would give a command and then he'd spend some time fleshing out the command. What we're supposed to do in light of the command. So the command for this morning, as it relates to putting on the new self, is if you're a Christian, the command is walk in wisdom. That's your command. Walk in wisdom. And then verses 16 through 20, he addresses how to do that. And so the majority of the teaching, we're going to be just breaking down these verses line by line. So very first point, to walk in wisdom looks like this. As Christians, we would be redeeming the time that you've been given. So to walk in wisdom looks like redeeming the time you've been given. Let's look at verse 16. So, not as unwise, but as wise, comma, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, the first place that I'm drawn when I read this passage is, I would think most people are drawn to this, the end says, for the days are evil, right? And I, I've shared this before, but I grew up on, like the, I grew up on the Left Behind series, <laughs> Like, the plane scene where everyone disappears is the most terrifying scene of my life. And Kirk Cameron's like, what did I do wrong, you know? That's what, I'm drawn to that. That's the first thing that I see. The days are evil, and so I must do, like, I got to do some things because these days are pretty evil, and I got to make sure that I'm good so I can't waste my time, right? I think of doomsday preppers. I think of end-time conspiracy theorists. But I don't think, I don't think 
that Paul wants us to panic or to spiral into chaos. He usually doesn't write in a way for Christians to all... Like, if anybody's seen SpongeBob SquarePants, I know that's a very eclectic thought, but SpongeBob can't remember his name, and all his brain is going crazy, like, what's my name? And he's burning his files. That's not what Paul wants you to do. Like, running around crazy, like the days are... That's not it. He doesn't want you to panic and spiral into chaos. I think he has something else in mind. What I think is that the days are evil simply means that there is a very real enemy who is vying for your time and for your attention and for your desires. And if you're not careful with your life, he says walk carefully, if you're not careful with your life, then you will look back one day and realize that you've wasted it. Because you've given your time and you've given your attention and your desires to the enemy. The days are evil because the enemy wants you to waste the time that you've been given. To make the best use of your time is not to be a doomsday prepper. Because if you're a Christian, if the world ends, that's really good news for you. You get to be in heaven with God. To make the best use of your time is to have a healthy awareness that you don't live forever on earth, but what you do on earth matters. Walking in wisdom looks like taking advantage of every day that God has given to you. And I think for us, Paul is more talking about using your time in a kingdom way more than a worldly way. That's making the best use of your time. Don't waste the time that you've been given on your old ways. You are a new creation. You've been made new. Put on the new self. Don't waste your days by doing what you used to do before you were a Christian. Don't waste what you've been given. Now, in our culture, when we think of the best use of our time, when I think of it, I usually think of efficiency. Like getting things done the quickest way and the best possible way. Um, for me, as a basketball coach, I think of like the most efficient scorers, the most efficient defenders, the most efficient ball handlers. Those are the people that I want in the game, right? They're the best to have. So we think of uh, time, using our time well, as efficient. Um, I love Apple Maps. I love, uh, I mean, in Google Maps, whatever you use, you can type in a destination and it gives you five different routes. And then the one that's highlighted is the one that says, this is the quickest way to get there, right? And almost everyone pick. does anyone pick the longest way? Probably not, right? We like efficiency. It makes sense. That's what our culture thinks of as using the best, uh, as using the best use of our time. But I think that efficiency in the kingdom is different. Because to be efficient in the kingdom is not always to be a well-oiled machine, as much as it is to being present to wherever you are. Being an efficient Christian means wherever you are at, you're there. It's simply this. Wherever you are, be there. Wherever you are, be there. Greg and I were talking about this early this week, and it's said by a lot of different people in a lot of different ways, but when you're home, you think about work, and when you're at work, you think about being home. And when you're in your hometown, you're thinking about your vacation. And when you're on vacation, for me, like day three, I was like, it's time to go home. I'm done with this thing. I need to get out of here. We're frantic. 
We panic. We want to be where we're not at all the time. Some of us have decided where we're going to lunch, and that's what we're thinking about right now. It's coming quick. Our church ends at like 11.25. We can beat everyone there. Right? You're with me. But kingdom efficiency is being where you are. And redeeming the time that you have been given is less about building a barricade against the world and more about being present. How countercultural would that be? Is if you're with your friends and you're there. You're with non-believers and you didn't pull out your phone one time. You're present. The Office is one of my all-time favorite shows. Used to go to sleep to it. And then they took it off Netflix, so we bought Peacock, just for the office. Well, I did, and Melissa let me. In the series finale, Andy Bernard says, I wish there was a way to know that we were in the good old days before we actually left them. I wish there was a way to know we were in the good old days before we actually left them. Kingdom efficiency is to know that every single day you are in is the good old days. You're not worried about what's happened before and you're not hoping for what's happening next. You are right where you are. Because a lot of the time, the best gift that you can give to a watching world is to being present. And I think that for our culture, making the best use of your time is being exactly where you are. Physically and spiritually and emotionally and mentally. Be there. So here's some quick practical thoughts. As a watching world is, is there and we're learning how to walk in wisdom in a way to walk in love to people who don't know Jesus. If you're at work, work. Be diligent to work. Be be a diligent worker. This one's hard for us. When you are supposed to rest, rest. Put your phone on do not disturb. Put it in another room. Build time in your calendar to where you are actually resting. And when you're resting, don't think about all, don't feel guilty, just rest. Being present to the place that you are right now can mean so many different things. But it's just simply that wherever you are, be there. I think that's what Paul would say to us, that efficiency in the kingdom doesn't always mean getting things done. It's that whatever moment you're in, be there. Be exactly where you are. I think it's one of the ways that we can be distinguished as new creations in Christ. And something really interesting happens when you are where you are. For me, it definitely has, as I've tried to do this more. You, you actually start to like where you're at. And you start to like the people you're around. Because you're not worried about that thing that, you know, those people that you used to know, but God's given you something right now. And you're not hoping for something that's coming next because He's going to give it to you anyway. And so you're right there. And you start to like the people and like the places that you are. And you might actually end up liking Northeast Ohio in the winter because that's supernatural. That's countercultural. That God would, by the Spirit, allow you to love where you are. So be there. All right, let's move on. Secondly, walking in wisdom looks like discerning 
discerning, discerning. Wow, I forgot how to say that word. Anyone? Discerning? Is that it? Discerning, deserving. No, I'm just kidding. Discerning the Lord's will. Discerning the Lord's will. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what is the will of the Lord. Now, I know a lot of people get hung up on this. Asking the question, what's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to be? And in my experience, I've met people who have, and felt it myself, have been paralyzed from not knowing what you're supposed to do with your life so you don't do anything or you just stay stuck in where you're at. And I think the reason is because we're thinking about God's mysterious hidden will. It's this will that God has everything under control and it's mysterious and it's hidden and it's not something that you're ever going to know until we go to heaven. And I think we get hung up on it because, especially in my, where I was as a younger person, I was thinking, like, if I don't make the right decision, I'm missing out on God's will. If I don't have all of my ducks in a row, and I don't do the right thing, and I don't say the right thing, and pray the right thing, then the thing, the big thing, the mountaintop thing that I'm supposed to have is missed out on. And so now it's wrecked, and I don't get it anymore. But I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about. I don't think he's talking about God's hidden will that's going to be revealed to us in glory. What I think, what I think is that Paul is talking about God's revealed will. And this is like a pressure, uh, this is like the pressure release valve. Because God's revealed will is His will discovered through Christ in the Scriptures. God's revealed will that we are able to discern as Christians is discovered through Christ in the Scriptures. I used to say this in a really cavalier way, but I think it, it makes sense for this teaching that if you want to know what God's will for your life is, read your Bible and live your life. Read your Bible and live your life. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. So to walk in wisdom is to allow the revealed will of God through Christ in the scriptures to mold you day by day. You ready for this? This is amazing. Romans 12.2. This is Paul writing, so the theology stays the same. To discern the Lord's will, you have to try things out. you got to try things. For some reason, there's a virtue in our culture to know exactly what you want to be. What's the first thing you ask a 10-year-old when you meet him? What do you want to be when you grow up? It's a lot of pressure. I, wanted, I used to pray that Jesus wouldn't come back until I played in the major leagues. And that's all I wanted, to, that's what I want. But some people like, I'm going to be a doctor because that's the family I've grown up in, so I will be a doctor. And I don't care what's pushing against me, that's what I'm going to be. In the kingdom, this is amazing. In the kingdom, there is time and space to discern what the will of God is for you. 
In our culture, there's virtue in knowing exactly what you're supposed to do. In the kingdom, you had ten jobs. That's good. It means you tested ten things. How amazing is that? And then you had an eleventh thing, and it didn't work out. So you get to try a twelfth thing. Because God is a patient God. He doesn't need you to know by 22. And he doesn't need you to know by 52 either. And maybe the will of the Lord for you is that you've tested and discerned until you're 80 and God was preparing you for something. I don't know. But the virtue in knowing exactly what you're supposed to do all the time is just not there in the kingdom. Paul actually says that it's wise to take your time and to take space and to figure out what you're supposed to do. And the watching world will see, wow, that person's pretty wise. They didn't just rush into it. And guess what? Didn't work out. So, did something else. In the kingdom, you're allowed to try things out. Now, are you inhibited by making life decisions because you're waiting to hear from God? And I know that this is prevalent. This should be an encouragement to you because the way to discovering the Lord's will for your life is to live life. To live life. And you have the Spirit living inside of you, so the decisions that you're making in prayer are probably good decisions. And if they're not, God's going to redeem them anyway. That's what wisdom looks like. Test your life according to the Scriptures, and then constantly change and conform your life to Jesus. This is what it means to be a wise Christian. Try things, and then conform to Christ. The pressure's off. The pressure's off. When Paul says that it's wise for a Christian to discern the will of the Lord, he's saying, allow Jesus to mold who you are through the, through the Scriptures while you're living your life. This is why a daily quiet time is lifeblood for a Christian. Because we're meant to live. And we're meant to be influenced and developed and molded by the Word of God. And when you do that, when you do that, you aren't foolish. You're seen as wise. You're seen as wise. So, if you haven't made a decision because you're afraid you're going to make the wrong decision, my encouragement to you is make a decision. Get around some wise people. And if it doesn't work out, God's going to redeem it and then you can change the decision. All right, let's keep going. Walking in wisdom also looks like being led by the Spirit. Verse 18, starting now. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now this is linked to verse 17, because discerning the will of the Lord only happens through the Spirit. As you're living your life, the Spirit is influencing you to discern His will. And discerning the will of the Lord is more of an internal, intuitive thing. It's more about who, it's more big picture, like who are you becoming? That's the will of the Lord for your life. It's who you're supposed to be as a person, different personality, different job, whatever. It's more big picture. But now in verse 18, Paul is talking about being led by the Spirit in your actions being led externally. This is more day-to-day. -day. What you're supposed to do. The Spirit is actually supposed to lead you decision by decision by decision. To walk as wise is to have your actions to be influenced 
and led by the Spirit of God. Now, why does Paul address getting drunk on wine? And this could be any drink. Because it kind of seems out of place, because 15 and 16 and 17 are pretty general exhortations. But he's very specific here. It's, he kind of just switches it up a little bit. And I think there's a reason. The reason that he addresses drunkenness specifically is because wisdom is being led by the Spirit for your actions, but alcohol in excess controls your mind and leads to your flesh leading your life. So there's two opposing views. As a Christian, the Spirit is supposed to lead your life. Alcohol dims the Spirit. Being drunk on alcohol leads to a flesh-leading light. It's also important to note that wine was very common in Ephesus. I mean, very common. Like, daily drink. Like, everyone. Everyone drank wine. All right? And it's also important to know that there was alcohol in wine in Ephesus. It was used as an ailment for sickness. Paul encouraged people to drink wine. So it would be a wrong interpretation to go home and read this and say, I mean, if this is an issue that you're like struggling with, then you should do this. But for those who aren't, it would be wrong to just build this barricade around your life and say, well, I should never drink then. What Paul's trying to say is that a life of wisdom is one that does not let the consumption of alcohol get to the place where your mind is being altered. Because to look like you have wisdom, to look like you have wisdom is the Spirit leading and not your flesh. And when you are drunk on wine or drunk on drink, the reins on your flesh are weakened. And what's supposed to be your guiding light is dimmed. And your flesh becomes the navigator. And we've all experienced our flesh being our navigator. It doesn't lead to great things. The destination is not usually very good. Paul says that it leads to debauchery. It leads to debauchery. And it's not necessarily that being drunk on wine leads to debauchery. It it goes much deeper than that. This is so important. It goes way beyond that. It's that if you are led by your flesh, you're led to debauchery. If your flesh is your navigator for your life, you always listen to your body and that's it. The destination isn't very good, but when you're led by the Spirit, it leads to amazing things. And that's the important part of verse 18 for us this morning is that it's not supposed to be a negative verse. The overarching theme of verse 18 is positive. Be filled with the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. A life of wisdom is one that lets the Spirit lead. And the positive contrast to the negative here is that being filled with the Spirit leads to self-control, but also all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, which is the best, most energizing thing in life. Love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so we read, when we read this, the response as Christians shouldn't be like, man, it's a bummer. Like, we just, we're not allowed to get drunk anymore, man. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's actually supposed to be what a joy it is to be filled by the Spirit. What an amazing life we get to live that the Spirit 
fills us and bears good fruit in our life. So to walk in wisdom to a watching world is to be filled by the Spirit. We put off our old self, but if we just simply don't, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't necessarily have to be drink, but if we just simply put off that thing that allows our flesh to lead, and that's it, that doesn't mean you're filled with the Spirit. We also have to put on the new self. So Paul commands, be filled with the Spirit. But being filled is passive. So how does that happen? We've talked about this before. And in Ephesians, Paul addresses it, and Greg preached about it, and I kind of touched on it in Ephesians chapter 3. The way to be filled by the Spirit is to pray and ask God to fill you with His Spirit. The way to have a strengthened inner being, if you remember this in chapter 3, is that we ask God to strengthen our inner being by faith and prayer, and He will fill you. Substitute the negative of letting your flesh can be controlled by the positive alternative, the mindful fullness of the Spirit through faith. That's what it looks like to be a countercultural Christian. And then we have verses 19 and 20, and this is how it ends that Paul explains just a little bit farther the joy that comes with being filled by the Spirit, being a wise Christian. And he says this, this is what happens when you're walking in wisdom and by the Spirit. You will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you're walking in wisdom, filled by the Spirit, your heart is alive with the joy of the Lord. First, specifically, you're actually led to sing. And singing in worship, I actually think, is one of, way, one of God's way to care for your soul. Because if the content that you consume leads you to feeling the weight of the world, anxious toil, then singing worship is meant to care for your soul. You're singing the glories of God. You're singing about how good He is and how much He loves you. Your perspective is changed because you're singing about how you were cut off, but God has brought you near. And it's like this rush of emotion and remembrance of what God did for you and he, who He is. So yeah, the very first thing is, I mean, because this is a little awkward, we're supposed to address each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I think the very first point, the application, is that when you are walking in wisdom as a Christian, you sing. You sing worship to God. And then he says we're supposed to address each other. So, this is applicable. Does this mean that I'm supposed to go up to you and say, now this is going to be bad because I can't sing very well, but for a point, hello, how are you doing? Like, God loves you. Like, is that what Paul means that we're supposed to do? Because it looks like that, right? Like, if you're just reading that, that's what he's saying. I mean, you can. You might be looked at as kind of weird. But... I don't think that's what he's saying. I think 
and it's important to see, making melody to the Lord with your heart, it looks like this. That the songs of God that you sing to Him, they're also in your heart and influencing how you interact with others. It's that your heart is singing with joy so that what comes out of you is the result of joy to others. Love and patience and kindness and compassion and empathy. If you're not filled and then singing worship to God, then how you relate to others probably won't be filled with joy in worship to God, right? You see how it connects? It's that the songs of your mouth to God truly becomes the songs of your heart. And how you address one another changes. And so that's the application. In wisdom, we are brought to this melody in our heart to each other. I don't want to look too far ahead, and we're, my timer's saying, cut it off, guy. But this has massive implications to the way that husbands and wives relate, which we're going to talk about next week. Because being harsh is never godly. Being harsh is never godly. Lastly, for our application, it's this. That wisdom in a spirit feeling leads you to thankful prayer. And that's verse 20. Giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you're walking in wisdom, your day is full of prayer, thanking God for the life that you've been given. Because as a Christian, it's a really good sign that you're not walking in wisdom if what you're marked by is complaint. If that's what your life is marked by, then we're not walking in in the Spirit, right? Wisdom looks like recognizing that everything that you have, everything that you have, is a gift from God. And you probably didn't deserve it anyway. And He's good and loving and He gave it to you. And so your prayers are full of thankfulness. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.